turn to Genesis 19 in our Bibles, Genesis 19. The last time, last week, we saw Abraham, the friend of God, who is standing in the plain of Mamre overlooking the smoldering heap of Sodom and Gomorrah after its divine judgment. And the judgment came because there was so much evil, so much wickedness, that it led to so much violence, which is what happens. The wages of sin is death. And so God, once again, just as he did before Noah, had to step in. So let's read some verses, Genesis 19. And it says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave he and his two daughters, how the mighty have fallen, sitting at the gate, a legislator at Sodom, a big shot, and now he's in a cave. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, that we will lie with him, that we preserve seed of our father. Of course, what happens here, as you know, is one of the most sordid, vile stories in all of Scripture. It's yet another reminder, by the way, that God wrote the Bible and not man. Moses had the pen in his hand. Moses is the man who's writing down the words, but he would have never written about his father in the faith. He would have never written about their family with all of these details. Which means, since God gave us His Word, and since this is the foundational book of His Word, we really ought to pay attention to it. It's not just a story. It's actually a message, and the message is pretty clear. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we hold it in our hands, that we have it, even in our hearts. And I pray that You'll speak to us through Your Spirit, casting all distractions out. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You may recall a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he began to cultivate a vineyard. And from that vineyard, we find that he made wine. And when he got drunk from that wine, you have the ugly scene that followed with his son. Well, in this event, which also follows judgment, one was the flood, this was, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, Now we have a far more sordid story that includes incest instigated by Lot's own daughters. And of course, it could have never happened. It would have never happened, just like Noah's shame would have never happened, were it not for the presence of one element in both instances, and that is wine. In fact, I want you to notice how prominent this one element is to the whole story before we get on. Look at verse 32. They said, come, let us make our father drink wine. Verse 33. And they made their father drink wine that night. Verse 34, the last part of the middle part says again, let us make him drink wine this night also. And then verse 35, they made their father drink wine this night also. I mean, it's just repeated. But I want you to think about it for just a moment again before we go on, because The first mention ever in all the Bible of wine, Moses, uh, rather Noah and his shame. And then the very next instance, here it is, this awful story. This is not to say that alcohol, the substance itself, is a sin. It's not. But let's be honest with the scriptures. 
And let, let's take notice that there are very clear warnings from God. It's going to go on through the rest of the Bible. But at the very beginning, we see in these two instances, the first mention of this, that alcohol is dangerous. It is not to be trifled with. It is absolutely not something to be proud of or laughed about as if drunkenness is cute or funny. I'll tell you what, when I see videos of wedding receptions where the father of the bride is acting the fool because he smashed or because the best man is drunk out of his mind, or sometimes the bride herself. When I see these videos, I never think they're funny. I never think they're hilarious. I always think it's sad. And that's because I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I know that this marriage, not the wedding, but this marriage is going to have to deal with that issue over and over and over again in the years ahead. I'll remind you again that when Lot left Sodom, he begged his uncle to let him go at least to stay in a small city. I don't want to go in the wilderness. I don't want to go to the scary mountains. I don't want to go in those places. Let me go to this little city because he couldn't imagine. It had been institutionalized, if you will. And so he couldn't imagine he and his daughters living out in the country, a town or a village maybe. He and his daughters were full-blown city dwellers. I read an interesting article just yesterday about all of these celebrities, and they listed all of them. Cheryl Crow just was, was one of the main ones. It saved her life to move out of, out of L.A. And it listed all of these celebrities who've, less, who've left L.A., New York, Boston, and they're trying to find a rescue for their minds and their hearts and so forth. And their friends that they leave behind in the cities think that they are crazy. Lot and his daughters think it's crazy to not want to live in the city. So they decide to settle down in a city called Zoar. And sure enough, as we noted, Lot gets drunk. He commits incest with his own daughters because of their own deception. Apparently growing up in the schools of Sodom, beloved, left these girls without any sense of shame or morality or any understanding of God. Now we come to chapter 20. And this is the last you're going to see of worldly Lot in Genesis drunk and dishonest and disgraced. However, the amazing thing about chapter 20 is that it's Abraham's turn. Now it's Abraham's turn to fail. This time, not as a worldling, but as a man of God. In particular, he's going to fail in the exact same way that he had done in Egypt 20 years before this. In other words, just as he had lied about Sarah being his sister to Pharaoh, and you think he'd learn, right? Now he's going to lie about Sarah to Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And he does so for the very same reason. He's afraid. He's afraid for his life. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country. And dwelled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. By the way, why did Abraham leave Haran? Does anybody know? I mean, was it the smell of Sodom's sulfur? Or the depressing sight of the smoldering plains every day? Did God command him to go? Well, honestly, we don't know. But whatever it was, we are told that Abraham packed his bags and he journeyed south. Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Of course, again, that's a half-truth. 
And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, <laughs> same thing happened. And I want to take you back again to the Abrahamic covenant. This is vital. Go back again to God's promise to Abraham, because when you go back to the sacrifices, it was God alone who walked into the midst. He passed through the middle. I take you back to chapter 17 in your mind. And back to the promise that God repeated to Abraham over and over again while Abraham was lying there on his face. God continually promised, I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. I will make a great nation out of thee. In fact, nations. I will establish my covenant with thee. I will give unto thee this land and I will be your God. Over and over again, God said, this is what I will do. I take you back to that covenant that God made without the help of Abraham because he put him into a deep sleep. And for good reason, he put him into a deep sleep. And for good reason, God made this covenant and God is the one who said, I will keep it. Because here again, we find Abraham, the friend of God, the father of the faithful, slipping in his faith. So let's make the observation again that we started off with. Men, when writing of their spiritual heroes, tend to gloss over their sins and shortcomings, but not the Holy Spirit of God. This book is simply an inspired record, inspired by God, of what actually happened. Pastor, why does it say in the Bible that they, they cut up the, the, the ver this virgin and send it to the leaf? Why does it say that? Because that's what happened. And God's word doesn't gloss over. It tells us what happened because it's God's word. Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, she is... His wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man. Man, you know, if, if you know, people like to talk trash, you know, hip-hop talks trash, everybody talks trash, hey, yeah, yeah, yo, mama, whatever. If someone says, you know, you're a dead man, eh. But if God says you're a dead man, eh. Behold, thou art but a dead man. For the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. So she lied too. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. By the way, it's very important, again, as always, we don't lose sight of the big picture as we learn these details about Abraham's life. Who is this man? Who exactly is Abraham? Well, again, he's a son of Shem who came off of the ark. He's a man from Ur who believed God, who had faith in God, who had faith in God's promise that his seed would become a chosen nation. That nation, from which that nation the Redeemer of man would someday be born, which tells us what? Well, folks, if you go back to the garden, it tells us that Satan is going to do everything that he can to stop this, to stop this whole plan of redemption, to stop this covenant that God has with Abraham. This is why Cain slew Abel. This is why there was a Tower of Babel. This is why there's a boy named Ishmael. And now, this is why there's this temptation with Abimelech. After all, notice how carefully the Holy Spirit details this story. It's not just 
to satisfy our curiosity. Look at verse 4. But Abimelech had not come near her. He said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? What that means is Sarah hadn't yet been touched by Abimelech. Now, why is that important? Well, think about it, folks. Satan would love to be able to say that Isaac was actually Abimelech's son, not Abraham's. In fact, he'd love just to insinuate it, just to put doubts in the, in the eyes of the world and Abraham. And so to prevent that, God does two things behind the veil, behind the scenes, so to speak. Verse 6, And God said unto him, Dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore, suffer, allow I thee not to touch her. Wow. You know, this is an interesting little sidelight, I think. Abimelech's sort of boasting. He's sort of boasting about the fact that he hadn't touched Sarah, but the truth is, as God states in his word, that that wasn't even Abimelech's doing. God had to withhold him. And God allowed him not to touch her. It's a lesson for us. It is a lesson that before you ever get all prideful about the fact that, well, I've never in my 40 years ever been fired for dishonesty, or I've never been unfaithful, and I've never been drunken, or I've never uh, taken drugs. I, I've never been divorced. I'm just Mr. Perfect. Okay. But before you ever allow pride to sweep up in your soul about that, you should look behind the scenes and see that there's a great and merciful God who probably has delivered you from such over and over again. God said, Abimelech, I know you haven't done it, but that's because I haven't allowed you to do it. Now he says, you better obey my will. So that the first thing that he does, beloved, to protect the integrity of Sarah is keep Abimelech at bay. The second thing you'll notice is down in verse 17. Look at it. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In other words, now follow this carefully. Again, these are details that are vital to the entire plan of God's redemption. Just to defend, to safeguard Sarah, and to silence any satanic accusations for the next 4,000 years to this very night. God closed the wombs of all of the women of Abimelech's house, and that closure, if you will, remained until Satan was foiled and the truth was out, and that particular danger was over. You see, in every way, in spite of Abraham's shortcomings, God is fulfilling his will. God's plan is not being thwarted at all. And God is bigger than some local king, some, some local potentate. Say, so, Pastor, how, how is it that a king with a harem, by the way, was attracted to a 90-year-old woman in the first place? Why would he want her with him? Well, you know, it's really simple. If you believe the Bible, if you know what happens. Because in the next chapter, this 90-year-old woman is going to conceive and 
bear a child. That's a miracle. But what it is actually is a miracle of youth. It is a miracle in that God was the one who renewed this woman's youth. You know, you imagine the billions and billions of dollars spent by women, especially in the West, to hide wrinkles, to color the hair, to enhance their fertility, to brighten their eyes, through surgery and cosmetics and fashion and working out and dieting. And all women spend billions and billions of dollars to turn the clock back. And it hardly works. Can we all agree that the surgery never works? But God can do it so easily, he doesn't even have to mention it. Look at verse 7. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. A prophet. And he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die. Remember thou, but a dead man. Thou and all that are thine. You know, here is the first mention of a prophet in all the Bible. Again, this is the foundational book. So there, a little bit, we believe in the law of first mention, somewhat. It's the first mention of a prophet. That means this, Abraham is God's man. Now, we noted last week that Abraham wrote no books. He wrote no psalms. He, he recorded no prophecies. But he is noted as a prophet precisely because he is God's man. Here's the question. He's a friend of God. He's the father of the faithful. God says he's my prophet. Is he perfect? Man, he's far from perfect. Verse 8, Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their ears. And the men were sore afraid, very afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely, the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Wow. No, Abraham's faith is not perfect. And yet, again, God still calls him my prophet. He's God's man. He's God's spokesperson. And in fact, look again at Abraham's observation in verse 11. This is prophetic. And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, they will slay me for my wife's sake. In other words, when Abraham, this patriarch, came into this land of Gerar, the Bible says that he immediately made an evaluation. You do that. If I were to drop you off in New Orleans at night and you walked around a while as a Christian, you'd have an evaluation pretty soon. Las Vegas, New York City or wherever. He made an evaluation of Gerar and and his evalu- because of his evaluation, he came to a conclusion. And his conclusion was about 100% correct. He said, surely the fear of God is not in this place. That's the evaluation. His conclusion was, therefore, they will slay me. They'll murder me for my wife's sake. In other words, where there is no fear of God, Abraham said, Neither is there respect for life or the sanctity of marriage. And again, Abraham was right. When Paul gives his analysis of corrupt man in the book of Romans chapter 3 and talks about a nation that's falling like ours, 
he concluded by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about man. And you know what was Jesus' conclusion to that judge? That he would without, live without justice. You see, beloved, the crisis in America today, and it is a crisis. The reason it's a crisis is because it's growing. The violence, the injustice, the rebellion, the two-tier justice system, some are punished, some are not. The whole problem with our society is boiled down to one evaluation of Abraham. Underscore it, take note of it, and remember it. He said in verse 11, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and that is what is fundamentally wrong with every institution in America. And I mean education and media and the courts and Congress and the White House and, yes, churches. Churches that have abandoned the Word of God for entertainment, for accommodation to the carnal flesh, all of these, the truth remains, that surely the fear of God is not in this place. You have churches in New England that put the LGBTQ plus flag in the, draped in the entrance of the church. There's no fear of God in that place. It would be very easy for us tonight, all of us, to make the argument that in most places in our country, it wasn't always like this, in our country right now, people do not have any fear of God. And I mean in our movies and our television and our newspapers, our magazines, our books, our classrooms, even in everyday language. Comedians laugh at God. Musicians mock God with their lyrics. Actors defy God. The God of this book is cursed, challenged, denigrated, scorned, denied, and insulted. God's laws and God's commands upon which this country and England were based are dismissed. But Abraham said, there's no fear of God in this place. Now follow this for a minute. What place? Gerar, ruled by a man named Abimelech. There was no fear of God in that place. My question is, what about your place? Your marriage? Your home? What about your heart? Do you have the fear of God in your heart? What about this place? Beacon Baptist Church. Do we have the fear of God? Hebrews 12, 28 says, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence, and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, you got that, right? He said that serving God acceptably, which is the only way you can do it, acceptably is serving Him with reverence and godly fear. Pastor, I didn't know that we're supposed to be afraid of God. Well, it depends on what you mean by afraid. The fear of God doesn't mean being afraid of God. Or to put it in a child's understanding, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be scared. If you're a Christian, if you're his child, you're not supposed to be scared of God. Look, remember the metaphor that the Hebrew writer used, because it goes right back to here. Sodom had just been destroyed as well. He said, serve God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think about when you think about fire. I mean, 
It's intriguing. It's mysterious. Under control, a fireplace is relaxing. Very relaxing. It's a comfort on the hearth when you walk in on, on a winter's night. Under control, a fire as a candle or a lamp will light up a dark room and bring warmth. Fire is beautiful. It is beautiful, it is warm, it keeps people alive in the winter. Fire is a powerful, powerful blessing to man. However, if you take it lightly, if you don't respect its power and have a healthy fear of it, Fire will burn you and in some cases completely destroy things around you as we saw in Maui. That's what fire can do. I was a fire bug growing up as a kid, as most of you know. And I remember my dad was thrilled once when a, a fire safety program came available up there at Patrick Air Force Base and he wanted me to take it twice that summer. And, and you know what they do in those fire safety programs? They start out by telling you, I know because I, I, you know, I had to learn it twice, by telling you the dangers of fire. They don't begin with a little campfire or a cozy fireplace. They show you how fast a house can burn to the ground. I could have taught that particular session, but they show you how many people die in fires every year. They show you how to respect the awesome power of fire. In other words, the beginning of wisdom in fire safety is to fear the fire. The Bible says the beginning of wisdom, the wisdom for everything, is the fear of the Lord. In some ways, the fear of God is the foundation of our entire perspective, our entire relationship with Him. And that of any society. Now again, does that mean that Christians are supposed to constantly be scared? Shake in God's shadow? Not at all. I want you to look at Exodus 20 on the screen for a moment. Notice what it says in verse 20. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that His fear may be before your faces that you sin not. Now wait a minute, which is it? Fear not or fear? And, beloved, the answer is yes. It's like this. You don't have to be afraid of God if you fear God. You don't have to be scared of God. Young people in Sunday school ask me, uh, oftentimes when we have Q&A, they'll ask me, Pastor, what does it mean to fear God? They read it somewhere, or they memorize the verse. Am I supposed to be afraid? And sometimes I'll simply use their father as an example. Rebecca over here, is not scared of her dad. I mean, I know she's sitting too over, but she's not scared of her dad, Mike. She doesn't cower in a corner when he comes home because she knows he loves him, loves her dearly. But neither does she call him Mikey. Hey, Mikey, get me a Coke. You gonna do that tonight, Rebecca? No, because she fears that place. Abimelech, doesn't get his, if he doesn't get his hands off of Abraham's family, he's but a dead man. That's the God who rules the universe. And you know, I hardly ever say this because it's overused and has been since I've been in 
independent Bible-believing churches. But that's why you really don't hear me from this pulpit criticize men of God or in my office. Now, if he's a heretic and he's a liar and he's a phony and he's a fraud, I'll call his name, Benny Hinn. I don't mind. I'll call out the name because Jesus did that and Paul did that. But I don't lift my hand or my voice against this preacher or that preacher or that man of God because God doesn't meet, need me to straighten out one of his own. Abraham wasn't right here. That's a fact. But God did need the likes of Abimelech to point it out. Look at verse 13 again. Back to our original text. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place, whither we shall say, whither we shall come, say of me, he is my brother. Remember that old argument, Abraham? This is the same one. You'll notice he's repeating it. He really should have learned in Egypt to drop that idea. And I remember when I read this a few weeks ago in preparation for tonight, I thought to myself, man, we need to keep dropping our carnal ideas too. All of our man-made ideas and our little, you know, rationalizing, we should just drop our fleshly ideas. Verse 14. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes, unto all that are with thee and, all, and with all other. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. Now, beloved, I want you to think about this. Why? Why is Genesis chapter 20 in the Bible? I mean, of what great significance is it that Abraham went down all the way to the land of the Philistines, that he settled at the border of the promised land, that he lied to Abimelech about his wife Sarah, that he had to be delivered by God, and now he's 100 years old and still without the promised seed. What is Genesis chapter 20 and 21? I'll tell you what it is in part. It is a reminder that God's on his throne. It is a great reminder that God is in control. And it's a reminder that Satan is still, to this day, fighting. And as such, presents the introduction to chapter 21. Let's look at it and we're almost done. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as he had said. God always keeps his promises. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. You see, beloved, Abraham's 100. Sarah's 90. This had to be of God. It had to be a miracle. And the Bible says, at the set time, as he said, as he had spoken. The next time you read the book of Revelation, you think, wow, is that really going to happen? Oh, as he said, as he has spoken. At the set time, God gave the promised son. And Abraham, blessed Abraham, did exactly then as God had commanded him. Verse 3. 
chapter 21. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, bare to him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. You know, this is actually a wonderful scene. I've meditated on this scene quite a bit. I thought about it and compared it with other scriptures. This is a scene of joy. This is a scene of happiness, faith, and reward. Not only with Abraham and Sarah, but really in heaven. I'm telling you, if you know what's going on and how God has sometimes pulled back the curtain, the angels and Adam and Enoch and Noah, they all know the spiritual meaning behind this. There's music in the air. Verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned, and rightly so, all this joy. But then, the music of joy and laughter and, and faith is broken. Because all of a sudden, a minor note is hit, an ominous sign. Have you ever noticed how composers for a film will use music to set a tone and just, if everything's going great, there was a movie I remember I watched, and you've seen it, many of you. The kids are all playing, and all of a sudden you hear, nah, nah, and then you're like, oh boy. <laughs> the end of that. You know there's a reason for that constant backdrop of good versus evil that is in all literature, all film, all drama, that the world doesn't even quite comprehend? They sense that there's, and they play off of it, that there's good and evil in the world. Here's Abraham and Sarah. They're full of joy, full of faith. There's a feast. And then there's this minor key. And it comes into the scene at that right moment, and it changes the course of human history that is felt to this moment. Look at verse 7. And she said, Would have... Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Here it is. And Sarah, here's the minor note, saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which he had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Now wait a minute. There are all kinds of things that 13-year-old Ishmael could have done regarding his half-brother Isaac. For example, he could have rejoiced with Abraham and Sarah. He could have embraced this opportunity. He could have seen Isaac as his little brother. He's just a baby, you know, at this point. He could have seen him as a companion and a needy child. Matter of fact, you can take that last word in verse 9 and do all kind, put all kinds of verbs in its place, and today the world would be a different place. If it had said, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar praying, praying, or put the word rejoicing, or put the word praising, the word hoping, but it was none of that. 
Sadly, the word, the last word of verse 9, is a word of derision. It is a word of scorn and ridicule. Because Ishmael is mocking. He's mocking. Mother and Isaac. If you've ever seen people in some Arab nations, what, even if they're very poor nations, some of them are, they may be hungry. One thing you'll notice is that they are avid readers of the paper. I noted this even as a boy in, in living in Turkey. In the streets, called the Arab street, in their homes and their businesses, if they have a spare moment, they're reading Al Jazeera, or the Cairo Press, or Al Ahim, all of them. They're readers. And here is a 4,000, here it is 4,000 years later, the single most common attitude of the sons of Ishmael. What they see on their papers all over some of these nations is still mockery. It's mockery towards Israel. In the political cartoons, in the hard news, in the op-eds, even in the advertisements, the attitude of the Arab press toward Israel is one word, mockery. They will ridicule and laugh and scorn and ultimately dismiss the sons of Ishmael altogether, of Isaac altogether. So I'll say it again, what happens in verse 9 literally changes the course of history. You say, well, Pastor, are you for sure? I'm going to close with this. Are you, or how do you know for sure? Who's to say that Ishmael isn't the son of promise? Who's to say that Isaac shouldn't have been mocked by Ishmael back then? Look at verse 10. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, because of thy bondwoman, and all that Sarah hath said unto thee. Hearken unto her voice, for in, here it is, this is the Bible, this is God's word, this is God speaking, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This is the God of Abraham speaking. This is Moses writing it in the book of Genesis. This is the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Look on the screen for a minute at Galatians 4. Paul, who is no f fan of Israel anymore, he called them blind. He still writes these words. Verse 21. Tell me you that desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh. In other words, lack of faith. But he of the free woman was by promise. Verse 28, look in your screen. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as then that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so, it is now. What's he saying, Pastor? Follow this carefully. He's saying that just as Ishmael mocked Isaac, so too does the fleshly works crowd. You know what Galatians is about. People who believe you have to get to heaven by works and people who believe in the blood of Christ by faith. He says it's just like it was then, it is now. The fleshly works crowd mocks and persecutes the grace crowd. 
Verse 30, if it's going to be in your screen, I'm not sure. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? What saith the Scripture? That's what we all ought to say, right? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, hallelujah to that, but of the free. We're not under the law, we're under grace. So that Paul is using the facts of what happened then as an allegory of grace and law. But clearly, he saw the facts as we do. Isaac, not Ishmael, is the son of promise. And the mockery that started 4,000 years ago continues to this day. If you wonder why, what it's all about, I can't make sense of it, just go to the book of Genesis. Go to the Bible, and you can make sense of it. That mockery is here. And yet... Through all of it, through all of this, what you can see crystal clear is that God has a plan and that because God has a plan, predictably Satan hates and opposes that plan precisely because that plan includes his own demise. And we can see clearly that God's plan of redemption is right on schedule exactly to this night as he said it would be. And we can rejoice that we are children of God by faith, by grace, not by the works of the law. And God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, inasmuch as we can see human nature in every word, every page, we can learn lessons from it. That it's a, it's a human nature issue. It's a personal issue that the envy and the mockery cause so much heartache and pain. And we can apply that to our lives that we had an opportunity, we can pray, we can rejoice with them that rejoice, we can do unlike Ishmael. And just as we see the personal issue of Abraham lying and getting himself in trouble, we can apply this. But mostly, Father, we thank you that we see continually over and again that you are on your throne, that this plan of redemption, that the gospel record is true, and may we have the fear of God before our eyes. May this place have that. Bless us to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.